This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we're going to welcome Nancy Goldman, who spent more than 30 years as a mental health professional using nature and the positive effects it has on mental health in her practice. Today, we'll talk about the benefits of forest-guided therapy and equine therapy when dealing with trauma, anxiety, and stress. Also, we always look for any general wildlife experiences you'd like to call in and share about, and Dr. Major's on the line ready for pet questions. So join the conversation. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed part of Creature Comforts on Thursday, just a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. We've got a lot to talk about, and I wanted to start today with something that our producer Java told us about that he heard about on the news, and I found an article about it in the uh, the headline reads, Woodpeckers hoard over 700 pounds of acorns in Glen Allen vacation rental. This comes from California, and it says um, the an exterminator was expecting the home for mealworms in December, so he cut a hole in the bedroom wall, and something unexpected came gushing out. More than 700 pounds of acorns had been stacked 20 to 25 feet high in the home's chimney. The culprit was a pair of acorn woodpeckers, big-eyed birds with clownish faces and red caps, often known to squirrel away large amounts of acorns, apparently so. Uh, they had pecked holes in the two-story home's chimney stack and hidden their cash inside. So, wow, that's an incredible. And if you see the picture, it's just amazing about just the acorns just pouring out of the uh, out of the hole that the guy made there. So. Any thoughts, Libby? Well, that's um, I was saying uh, acorn. Woodpeckers are pretty common around our place in Corvallis, Oregon, and um, they are always very, very busy. They're hardworking little guys. Nancy and I were just joking that uh, birds in general and maybe woodpeckers in particular kind of tend to OCD behavior anyway, and uh, it's probably good for their livelihood, though, to overcompensate a little but it's and it sounds like they they really they do have a bird brain they didn't (laughs) realize that they couldn't retrieve those acorns once they put them in the i think that's the sad part of it is that maybe those 700 pounds went unused by them or they're just hoarders. Yeah, they're just compulsive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah but the mealworms appreciated it. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. They read it on the internet about the world coming to an end, so they were just getting ready. I think that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I heard my peleated yesterday while I was on the porch, and um, I wonder what he's got hoarded away somewhere. Um, we're going to talk to you in just a minute about some other observations in your yard, but someone who has really added a lot to our show lately about things he's seen in his yard is producer Java Chapman. Java, what do you have for us today? Well, i actually just going to talk about something I saw this morning because we had so much rain last night. I don't know how many robins I had in my yard, but it was a, it was a gang of them. I don't know what's the proper term. I guess a flock, <laughs> flock a flock yeah. of robins. Um, but I just wanted Libby to, I guess, talk about they looked like they were eating in the in in the the yard uh i guess with the rain did it push up the worms or the or the food that they were looking for yes yes worms do tend to 
come to the surface or close to the surface after a rain or during a rain, I guess. And robins flock up, particularly in the winter, and they tend to roost together in trees. So you might they might have spent the night there close by. And there can be a big flock of them. And sometimes they're joined by some starlings or blackbirds, some things like that. Robins, um, but they... You know, they move around to, they don't do those really, the greatest murmurations, I think, are by those big um, flocks of um, blackbirds. But they, they, they kind of, it's a big enough flock that it's interesting to watch them move around and be loud. And they, you know, they're ground eaters. Robins nearly always are going to be found on the ground or close to the round, ground eating. And that was the thing that was really uh, peculiar because they were just hopping around. You know, normally you walk close enough to a bird, it's going to fly off into the distance. But it was like, hey, I'm eating. I'm going to just <laughs> hop over here to this other little part of the yard. And then you walk over there and then I'm going to just hop over to another part of the yard. So it was kind of fun this morning. And kind of safety in numbers, too. When they're with that flock, they seem less afraid. That's, yeah, that's right. It, it did seem that way. So anything else you're seeing in your yard? Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> kingfisher. And I had read recently about kingfishers, and we've had one kingfisher pretty consistently on a, a neighbor's area. It's a, a pond impoundment area. It'll be probably temporary water, but there's been water there all winter in a place that um, he really created by um, – building a road through his yard a couple years ago. So anyway, kind of a new water area. So it was fun to see that a a kingfisher, a belted kingfisher, had found the area. The males will often hang around all winter in their territory and continue to uh, protect their territory or defend it. And then the females will come back in the spring. So I um, have to start watching and seeing if his female comes back. But she was not there this week. And I guess it would be a little early anyway for And let's uh, – all the great rain. This has been a good time to be in Mississippi. Uh, February can be a wonderful month here. Uh, leopard frogs, chorus frogs, I heard. And I like to hear that one individual – chorus frog, which I don't often hear. That's, I guess, why they call chorus frogs. You hear a bunch of them. But that distinctive running your finger down the comb slowly, mm-hmm. it was um, cool enough, cold enough that he was very slow and deliberate in his call. So that was fun the other day. Uh, looking for Phoebes. My Phoebes have been there all winter. And I'm uh, I'm hoping that they'll stay and nest this year. For about 20 years, we've had nesting Phoebes. And 20 years ago, people told me, oh, this is really unusual. And I've even made some records of them. And we had two and three Phoebe nests. They they make a mud, kind of adobe-looking house on the outside of a of a structure usually. I'm sure, you know, it was some kind of a tree before, but they really prefer structures. And so they've been on our house for the last few years. And then when we had that really bad ice storm a couple of years ago, I found dead Phoebes and they did not nest that year. Last year I had just one nest and it was on an outbuilding, not back at our house. I guess it was a, a different group of Phoebes, possibly. So I'm really hoping that I have them nesting in the next month or six weeks or so. 
As always, Dr. Major has joined us via the telephone from his clinic in Jackson. So, Dr. Major, here is a pet question for you, saying that we have three adopted retired greyhound racers. The oldest is 12, and she's gotten very thin, all ribs showing. We put out three food bowls at meals, and she eats out of all three bowls. She eats a lot of food, but remains very thin. Any ideas? Well, first thing I would do, I would suggest, if you haven't done it, would be to go and have your vet do some blood work and see what might be going on. It sounds she's otherwise normal. Uh, there could be a pancreatic insufficiency, possibly. Uh, she sounds like she's taking in a good bit of food. Uh, I say general blood panel would be first thing I would suggest doing, and also check the uh, food that she's eating. She needs plenty of carbs, but she don't overdo the protein simply because of the effect on the kidneys and everything. But I would say that that would be my first step would be to talk to your veterinarian and get some blood work done if you have it. All right. Very good. Let's uh, take a phone call. Our friend Mikey is on the line from Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I heard the woodpecker report. Um, it's uh, Well, we had a thunderstorm. It was like 2.30 or 3 a.m., um, and uh, I was very amazed to hear that woodpeckers get to be a half a pound. That's a big bird. I, mean, I got a dog that only weighs eight pounds, you know, and he looks like a bird, So, and uh, which is the other, because he's half Maltese, half Chihuahua, you know, it's like, and of course he wants to get up and go out at two or three in the morning, <laughs> always, whether it's raining or not, you know. Of course, he gets out there and he goes, let me back in, let me back in. But um, the ho- and the real worry with him is that the hawks are back. I, I think they're red wing hawks, but I sure don't know, guys. I just, I'm just in awe every time I see them. They've got a wingspan. It looks like from, to me, little puny down here on the ground, that it's about a three-foot wingspan. So, um Anyhow, <laughs> um, uh, maybe, maybe possibly a red tail. Think a red tail hawk. Oh uh, uh, yes, ma'am. That see, I don't even know. Yeah, I don't there's even know a, how to say it right. You could either have a red tail or a red shouldered, and uh, the red tail's going to be a little bit bigger. Red shoulders husky and uh, unmistakable red. Reddish, well, I guess it's more of a rusty color. You know, we call a lot of things red on birds, but kind of a rusty colored shoulder area. Mm-hmm. Or if it's the red tail, he's going to have that um, red tail when you see the well, male flying. I do see them light once in a while. They've been around for years here. And again, this is a very suburban part of Westmobile. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I only get to see them light once in a while, and that's usually when they're looking at one of my cats or my little, my cat-like, you know, bird-looking dog or something, or sometimes a small child, I hate to say, but, you know, it's like with great interest. Um, uh, but uh, my question today is, and I know this is not a show on reptiles, but, I, you know, it's like I have this wonderful, um, it, it was a gift left by a snake. Um, it, it was a uh, uh, a skin shedding yes. that was left a few months ago. And I, I I need to move it from the, I have preserved it in a, um, oh, what was it before, a, a fan, you know, like a, like a fan, like you used to cool yourself off, electric fan thing that was plastic. And it's just so pretty. I hate to just lose it if, if I don't have to. 
can I put hairspray on it? How do I preserve it? If if it dries out good, um, Mikey, I've had good luck using them with kids in the museum and things and just letting it dry out pretty solid, maybe even on a on a plastic coat hanger, you know, so it's not real thin, so the metal doesn't cut through it. And it will usually dry enough that you can bring it in the house. Yeah, I think they're pretty, too, especially when the face is still on there. All right, uh, Mikey, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield. And our guest uh, this hour is Nancy Goldman. If you want to join our conversation with your question or comment, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. So, Nancy, thanks for joining this morning. If you would uh, start out by telling us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to incorporating nature in uh, therapy. Okay. Um, Well, I um, am a lifelong uh, lover of nature since probably since I could crawl um, and um, have been, you know, a student of nature um, my whole life. Um, And um, I also um, have had horses my whole life well since i was 10 which is a lot of years um and um my background is in mental health and and it's actually probably closer to 40 years in mental health 30 years in private practice um and i do a lot of work with um with trauma um and i uh, heard about um, equine assisted psychotherapy years ago and know from my own personal background how therapeutic my horse was to me um, growing up, particularly after we moved here. I was miserable for the first couple of years, and my horse was my therapist. But I also was thinking about it this morning. One of the things that I would do was go out and uh, you know, get my horse right out into the woods and just sit there and let nature come to me, and, uh, and that was really therapeutic. Um, so um, in my private practice, I started using um, equine-assisted psychotherapy, but I um, saw how um, when people were outside, it was just it, not just about working with the horses, but being really connected to seeing the trees move in the wind and being amazed by a butterfly or a flower. And I was like, I have got to you know, find a way to incorporate this into my work. Um, but, um, but I have an office practice, so um, um, I do more traditional you know, office work as well, and that's convenient for people. But I do encourage people to try and come to my farm um, for therapy as well. So would that be Harmony Farm? Harmony Farm. Tell right. us about that. Okay, so um, when I started doing equine-assisted psychotherapy, I've, uh, I've been on that farm for uh, we've, we've had my husband and I bought it oh thirty five years ago, I think, um, outside of Learned, Mississippi. Now people know about Learned because of the restaurant there, but um, so I'm a couple of miles south of there, and um, I just sold a little bit of acreage um, off, but I have about eighty acres, and it's a mixture of um, pasture and hardwood and tons of animals, um, tons of wildlife. But I also have a lot of other animals that I find to be therapeutic. Like right now I have baby goats, and uh, I've done a couple of therapy sessions sitting in the little yard with baby goats crawling all over you. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but um, but so, uh, so Harmony Farm, it, it was, you know, we had a B and B out there. No longer do that, but um, but mainly uh, used it for equine assisted psychotherapy until um, I uh, 
and, and, and now I've incorporated this forest therapy. I have to be careful to enunciate forest because people think I'm saying forced therapy like <laughs> you must have therapy. Anyway, so forest therapy. I like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was at a, a, a Petam Zoo years ago in St. Louis and got in with the baby goats where they give you the little thing of milk. And it was amazing the way those – I mean, they, they will just flock to you because they know what you got. And they were very fun to uh, interact with. It's impossible not to smile, I think, when you're in oh, the they're, presence they're of they're baby just, goats. They're just awesome. <laughs> Is there something, do you think, about horses that adapts well to therapy? Uh, yeah, horses are um, – you know, they're – Prey animals. We're predators, but horses are kind of the ultimate prey animal, and they've got a very big kind of awareness bubble. You know, you think about it, they see practically 360 degrees, and and they seem to be really intuitive. Um, I, I could go into stories about things my horses have done that it's like you, you can't make this up. I mean, it's like how did they know to do that? Um, and um, so – so and they're also really big um, – Mine are, <laughs> and I have some minis, but I use mainly my big horses, and I think it it helps people feel empowered when they can actually, you know, do something with a horse, um, and um, and they uh, they're just you know just really awesome, and um, and they teach people about trust and relationships and communication and all kinds of things. I use natural horsemanship, which helps people learn to communicate with horses the way horses communicate with each other. Um, so give us an example of one of those, wow, I can't believe he did that. Okay, okay. So, because oh, it's hard without visuals. Um, I uh, had a couple that I had been working with, um, uh, very low frustration tolerance in the wife. Um, they came out one day, uh, and I thought I was going to be doing working on her frustration tolerance but she was oh she was in a mood and um so one of the things i do is have people do obstacle courses and i have all kinds of stuff out there like pvc pipes and hula hoops and noodles and what have you and so i had them make an obstacle course that represented obstacles in their lives and uh three of them and they took the horse that they thought was the easy horse from the week before, and he would do that blindfolded, but he was having none of it. He would not go through that their obstacle course, and it was real simple. It was just like a lane of PVC pipes with three different things to walk through. Um, and so I decided to process with them what uh, the obstacles uh, represented. Um, and the first one was um, money. The second one was this thing that she wanted that involved family cooperation. And the third thing was communication. And that's the order she took them through. Well, my horse Tristan comes from like 100 feet away and on his own walks through the obstacle course course in the opposite direction. What did he put first? Communication. And that was just a huge. And it was like, how did he know to do that? <laughs> he found he caught it before I did, you know. And then that set the stage for. And I won't go into the, what happened next, but there was more awesomeness. But I know we don't have a lot of time, so. Um, but it it really was a game changer for them, and I they didn't need therapy after that. 
So the, it involves actually riding the horses. What what other sorts of things go on during the the equine assisted uh, therapy session? It's, well, it's all on the ground. Um, I don't do riding with them, um, and um, but it can be things like like I work with some highly traumatized individuals in a group, and I do more of it. There's like a natural lifemanship model and. So I teach them natural horsemanship techniques because they have to learn. Uh, it emp- it's empowering that they can move a fourteen hundred pound animal back with two fingers. You know, um, and these are people that are highly traumatized and they feel empowered. Uh, they learn how to communicate and communi- communicate clearly without giving mixed signals. They you know learn to trust themselves and trust the animal. Um, they learn how to develop a relationship with a big animal like that, and it's just. Um, it's it's pretty profound the results that you can get with just that part of it. You know, it is amazing horses. I have a friend of mine who rode horses when he was younger, uh, and so uh, a, a year or so ago on a trip back from uh, Florida, we stopped at the farm where he used to ride horses, mm-hmm. and he found the horse that he used to ride, and the bond after all these years, was still there. It was really amazing. Yeah. I mean, I have one horse in particular now that I work with the most, and he's I've got a great bond with him. Um, You know, horses, when you walk up to them and they're lying down, they get up, right, because they see us as predators. Well, when you do natural horsemanship, they see you as a fellow prey animal. He was lying down. It's a pretty sunny day, and I just went and lied down on top of him. (laughs) He wasn't even thinking about getting up. He just liked my presence. So as you mentioned, horses are rather large animals. If someone has a little bit of maybe not fear but just trepidation maybe, how do you kind of ease them into this session? Um, I usually will accompany them to – I usually let them decide which horse they want to meet. And um, and I usually will accompany them to to the horse and, and I'll pet the horse and just, you know, kind of show that – you know that there's nothing to be afraid of i've never had anybody come out there that wouldn't end up loving a horse so now i have a little mustang that's kind of a jerk (laughs) i have to keep them away from him but he's getting better so you're listening to creature comforts on mpb think radio good morning i'm kevin farrell here with dr troy major libby hartfield and our guest for the day is mental health professional nancy goldman if you want to join our conversation with your question or comment, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. More discussion with Nancy in just a minute, but Dr. Major, we do have a pet email for you that came in, and this one is, the person said they're traveling with two cats on a nine-and-a-half-hour trip. Wow. Uh, one of them is well-behaved, but the younger one, about a year-and-a-half old, is very active. Uh, any thoughts uh, that might make this uh, trip a little easier on all concerned? You know, it, it's very, very interesting because it varies from cat to cat. I remember about a six-hour trip with a cat, and I swear it meowed every time, you know, the little divisions in the concrete. <laughs> every time you heard that clump, the cat would meow. So that got old after a while, but <laughs> nothing I could do. nothing I could do about it, really. I would suggest if they have room to have a, a carrier big enough for the cats to uh, get around, but not to let the cats loose in the car. That can cause an accident. Uh, I've had uh, situations where people have told me they got under the brake pad, mm-hmm. uh, under the seat, and it's difficult to get a cat out of the, especially the older cars where there's coils, this sort of thing if the cat doesn't want to come out. 
So I would say get a carrier or carriers big enough for each cat where you could put a litter box and uh, and maybe a little, little bit of food and water. But uh, they'll be fine for that nine-hour trip. Um, the other thing is never, ever open your door with a cat loose in the car because the cat could be gone, and you probably would never catch it in most cats if it got out and spooked. And, you know, you just don't know what would happen then. So uh, there are some indications where some cats may need to be tranquilized a little bit for a long trip. Talk to your veterinarian about that. There may be something that they can do for that. Um, there are some things that would change the mood, but not actually cause too much sedation. But, you know, we all know how much cats love to sleep. Do you think that uh, on a trip like that, if they do kind of get settled in, that they might uh, just take a cat nap for a while? Exactly. If they've got a place that they feel safe in, uh, especially if this is the first trip, they may not cat nap. But I would say that certainly most of the cats and dogs settle down after the first few miles. And uh, that is something to think about. But they do need a place where they can stay. Uh, which would be a carrier large enough to accommodate them, uh, some bedding, and I think they would be be good. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Nancy Goldman, and she's telling us about her work with equine-assisted uh, psychotherapy and forest-guided therapy. If you have a question for Nancy or a pet question or an observation you'd like to share with us, you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Nancy, tell us what about uh, uh, what is a forest-guided therapy? Okay, so forest therapy... <laughs> not forced, forest <laughs> therapy, um, uh, was a practice, it's an ancient practice in Japan um, where, and it's in Japan it's called Shinrin-yoku. It's actually pronounced Shinrin-yoku, but it's spelled Shinrin-yoku. Um, and that literally means forest bathing. Uh, when I tell people that, it's like, do I have to take my clothes off? <laughs> no. Um, but um, it's, a, it's a practice where people... Um, take slow uh, walks in nature and try to um, reestablish a connection with nature. Um, here, um, it's it's a little bit different. It's a little more structured. And, um, and uh, so uh, Amos Clifford, who was the founder of the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy, he knew about the uh, descriptions of forest therapy from Japan and set about to to standardize it um, because there's a lot of medical benefits. And he thought that healthcare practitioners might be more inclined to uh, refer people for that, for the health benefits. Um, And so what it, in in this country, what it's like is that it's a, um, a, a walk that's usually about two and a half hours long. um, And it's, it's, very slow. It, you don't have to be in great shape. In fact, the first time I did one, we had a lady in two uh, foot boot things from surgery, and we didn't go very far, but she got a lot of benefit. Um, but uh, it's a slow walk in nature where you start out with some mindfulness where you're trying to get into your body and connected with your surroundings. 
Um, and then there's a series of what they call invitations. Um, and the invitations are, uh, are – it's worded that way because it's not like what you have to do. It's you're invited to do. And there's a, a variety of things that you invite people to do during the walk to connect with nature, to try to get – reestablish that connection that we – so many of us have lost with nature. Um, um, and if you – just kind of as a, an aside, you think about – the amount of time humans have been on this planet, 99% of our existence on this planet has, you know, been, you know, largely outside. So, um, so this being inside, we've really been disconnected from nature. Um, so back to the walk, um, the invitations, like the one, you, one of the ones you always do is to ask people to notice what's in motion. And that's kind of like a, um, it's a, focal point so if you get distracted by thought you go back to what's in motion um and that's a very slow walk and and if you really pay attention to what's in motion there's a lot going on so that helps people engage that's an example of a way they can engage in being in their experiencing self and not in their thinking self you want it to be about that experience um and then there could be a, a number of other invitations um and uh and then i always do uh what's called sit spot so back when i was talking about my horse and going in the woods and just sitting um I, I was doing sit spot but you have people find a place that they're drawn to um and i use my farm a lot um find, place, find a place that they're drawn to and just sit and observe and experience um and um and then you always end and this is one of the really cool things you always end in uh called it's tea ceremony. It's not formal, like I don't put on kabuki makeup or anything like that. <laughs> but it's a it's a tea ceremony where I or the guide makes a tea out of um, edible plants foraged from that that location. And usually I do that a little bit before and sometimes during the walk, and then I'll make a tea with that, and um, and then people uh, literally ingest. Uh, and make part of them um, what they've experienced in the forest around them. Um, and, and that's just a really cool thing. And uh, during these walks, kind of but not between every invitation, but between invitations, a lot of times we'll um, have like a council sharing where people kind of briefly uh, describe their experience. And, and there's been some really profound things that people have shared um, uh an example, one woman that um, I knew well, she had lost her husband fairly recently, and they had been together since they were 14 years old. I mean, they, uh, and she, they were in their 60s, and he died very unexpectedly. And we were doing the What's in Motion invitation, and what she noticed was um, the the grass of the person that, that the person in front of her had walked over bouncing back. And that was a real metaphor for resiliency and and that she could indeed bounce back from the the grief that she was experiencing um, but so and I've got some other examples if you want them but but those are the kinds of things that when you're doing that sharing um, that uh, people might share that experience with other people 
So you mentioned <clears throat> that reestablishing a connection with nature. Thoughts on why that's good for our mental health? Okay. Um, well, we're really designed to be outside. We're not designed to be in these boxes that we spend so much time in, like the box that's our house and we get in the box that's our car and go to the box that's our office. Um, we're designed to be inhaling, you know, oxygen, you know, that comes from the trees. And uh, we're designed to, you know, like, like the color palette of being in a forest is the ideal palette for our eyes. But um, there are, you know, the being, you know, calming down in a nature setting uh, stimulates your uh, your parasympathetic uh, nervous system, which is the relaxation response. And when you get that parasympathetic, the sympathetic nervous system is more your fight or flight, and parasympathetic is is more your autonomic control over your breathing and things that you don't really need to think about. But when you have like a parasympathetic dominance. Um, then your body is much more able to heal, both from a psychiatric, psychological standpoint, but also from a medical standpoint. I can go into detail on that, but um, but so when I I just find when I do therapy with people outside, even if I'm not doing uh, the forest therapy, um, people seem to get better faster. I have a woman who has a digit terribly degenerative medical disease that's not supposed to be getting better. Now, we've done a lot of trauma work, but it's all been outside, and she could barely walk with a with a rollator walker, and now we're walking in the woods for an hour when she comes, and she even did steep hills last time. And I think doing the trauma work was uh, one of the key things, because we got her, her parasympathetic or her limbic system calmed down. Her parasympathetic nervous system was more dominant, and her body gave the space for her body to heal. But being in nature was part of that, and um, so it can be it can be very profound. And an interesting thing to me, this really does sound like you are really just the guide, and it's each person's kind of own discovery uh, as they go through this thing. That's exactly right. Um, it's uh, the saying is um, nature is the therapist and the guide opens the door. Um, so so yes, I, I facilitate something, and and in the kind of trauma work I do as well, um, um, I facilitate their brain to be able to calm down the limbic system so that the trauma becomes like a neutral thing. Um, so you know. It, I, incorporating nature in that is is just you know puts it way ahead of you know kind of more traditional so in a less formal way if someone is feeling you know stressed from work again you know we got busy lives and going from one box to the other as you talk about and wanted to just go on a hike which we're so blessed in mississippi of great nature trails maybe some suggestions some of the similar things that you would do on the therapy walk kind of less formal people noticing their surroundings what would you give some tips for people to really relax when they're out hiking well first of all i'm i'm i think walking is great exercise but that's not what this is about it's about um what was the thing i was reading um if you're in such a hurry to get there then you you can't spend much time here you know, so what you're trying to do is to get people to slow down and and 
notice things in nature, to connect with nature. To um, so I would I would encourage people when they go on a on a trail in in the woods to to take it slow, to notice things like the sound of the leaves crunching under their feet, or uh, notice the you know like notice what's in motion, um, notice bugs crawling on the ground, notice. Uh, you know mosses and all those beautiful things out there just to to be with nature and not trying to get from point a to point b um i'll give an example of that um i uh i did a walk on on um somebody else's property um and um so i'd gone the week before and scouted out the trail and uh one of the people on the walk had grown up on that piece of land and in one of the sharing sessions she she had happy tears but kind of broke down and she said i've been walking this trail for for over 60 years and i've never actually seen it and so she slowed down and saw it you know nancy i wanted to mention um a technique i've used with kids and then i learned to actually use it for myself when i needed to calm down is if you're particularly with kids go ahead and do that hard walk where they like it, it in LaFleur's Bluff, famously, I would have them go fast as they could, all the way up, all the way down, and then come back, and then we sit, find our oh, perfect yeah. place to sit. That's a great and sometimes idea. Sometimes I kids. do that with myself. If I've got that anxiousness and worry, you know, but you're two in your head at the same time, do your fast two mile walk end in the prettiest place you can think of on that walk and then just stay there as long as you feel you want to stay there yeah that's a good idea particularly with children or anybody that's kind of agitated um uh you know it's about slowing down but in order to slow down you might have to speed up you got to burn up that energy then you can do it right Yeah, and like <clears throat> I've been a big uh, hiker of state parks, and it's amazing to me that you know when you're first there, you can kind of still connect with the outside world. But once you really get deep into a, a hike or something, nature en- envelops you. I guess it's like, and it's a very, it's a. I think it's calming, even without these, you know, more practiced things of mm-hmm. just going out there and, and soaking in nature, as it were. I agree. You know, one thing, yeah. If you're if you've been, you're enjoying your walk, sometimes I think people will feel like oh, I want to stop here and look around, but I better push on. Give in to that feeling of let me stop and look around And when you have that feeling. Right, and I, I tell people to leave their cell phones behind. That that this, People don't want to part with their cell phones. <laughs> but I take a cell phone for, you know, like if there's an emergency. You know, I'll, I'll have my cell phone on silent. But if people, you know, leave their cell phones back there. Like, this is not about... Who you you know communicating with other people? This is about you know being in communication with nature. And if you've got a good trail going, you probably don't have any bars anyway, so it's just That's an right. extra weight yeah. in your pocket. So. Actually, I have good cell phone coverage <laughs> on my farm, unfortunately and unfortunately. But yeah, you're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour, mental health professional Nancy Goldman. So, Nancy, uh, I was chatting with Java during the break, and he mentioned something that I think sounds a little bit related, but the uh, the idea of grounding. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Grounding um, can be a, a bunch of different things. Um, uh, but one of the first things I do 
on a forest therapy walk is um, it is a, a grounding technique where you um, notice the sensation of your feet on the ground, and that's literally grounding, um, and how you, you can connect your feet. Um, and this is an imaginary exercise, but with the uh, with the mycelium that connects to the trees, and so you, it's a grounding and kind of an imaginary grounding technique where you, you, um, I don't know if uh, people are uh, familiar with mycelium, and it's kind of like the equivalent to a root on a mushroom, and trees actually communicate with each other. Um, through and it's scientifically proven. It's not woo woo. Um, but uh, but but so it's like imagining you know your feet making contact with the mycelium, making contact with the with the trees around you and plants around you, and that can be very grounding. Um, but also just even in my office, if I have somebody that is. Um, there's something that people can do called dissociation, and it's a trauma response. And if I th- need to kind of bring them back, you can even have like notice everything red in the room, or uh, name you know three things that you see, two things that you hear, one thing that you smell or touch, or you know. So things like that can also be grounding. Um, when I'm working with the horses, um, I have people stomp on the ground and even blow out like a horse would blow out and um so there, you can be very imaginative with grounding but it's, it's trying to get people kind of back to you know like being connected with their um with their what what's around them uh nancy i know that you don't all oh, or i guess i'll say um the only type of uh, help that you give your patients is on the farm or with the horses but what um what I guess makes you take a patient in that direction. Let's say you may meet with them in the office and, you know, kind of the more traditional style, but then you're just like, well, I feel you may be a good candidate for um, equine therapy or, you know, forest guide therapy. Are there some certain traumas or stresses or anxieties that will lead you to say that this could help that person? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I don't, um, I try not to see children in my office. Um, it's just being in a box is not a great environment for children. Um, so even if it's not convenient, I try to get children out there at least, you know, at least half of the time. Um, and, um, but also, um, uh, people that have boundary problems, I have a horse that's great for boundary work. Um, and so experiential therapy can be just so much more powerful um, than words. And so if if I can, I, like a young this woman that um, had all these boundary problems, and I had her out with this really pushy, sweet, but he wants to be in your hip pocket horse, where she had to... Uh, get him to back up and stay up stay back and um and it was really it was really a, a profound experience for her so it's something like that or um or people that have um some of these autoimmune disorders um i want to get them out in nature um because of that parasympathetic response um so that you know they might that, that might improve um, their disorder 
like I've got somebody working with with lupus and and we haven't had her out to the farm yet, but that's my goal. Um, and so it there, I would like for everybody to come out there, but it's just not convenient for for everyone. Some people just you know have to you know come when it's convenient for their work schedule. But if if it if I ruled the world, um, I would just have everybody come to my farm for therapy um, because I just think it's a better fit. But I do kind of, you know, try to get specific people out there, particularly with the like different medical illnesses. Uh, almost out of time, Nancy, but if you would, if someone's listening this morning and was interested and would like more information on, on what you do, is there a way you would point them a website or something that they sure. can go to? I've got a couple of websites. I've got Nancy H. Goldman LLC. That's more my office practice, but you can still um, get to me that way. Then it's Harmony Farm of MS. Uh, it's not farms. I only own one farm, so it's <laughs> Harmony farm of ms and and I, it's fine to text me um uh my my number is 601-946-7482 um you could email me but <laughs> i might miss it um so uh text is better all right that'll if wrap you, us up for today uh, i'll go ahead and- i was just gonna say if you didn't get any of that you can we'll you can contact the show and we'll get you in touch with them. exactly uh, Creature Concerts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show again or visit a previous show, go to creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Our show is produced by Java Chapman and our podcast producer is Jermaine Flood and the call screener today was Jason Klein. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Nancy Goldman, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. It's next is AutoCorrect and we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Mm-hmm.